0: One of the things that our world really, really needs right now is good leadership. I was reading an article uh, in the New York Times by this gal named Leah Stein, and she identifies something that you might be really interested in. She talks about, oops, hold on, let me go back a second here, she talks about what what the new uh, the new leadership looks like in our community. So she has this article titled, The Empty Religions of Instagram. Now, don't get too discouraged if you're not an Instagram user. Most of you guys are on it for various reasons. But she talks about how in, on Instagram, there are people that are vying for leadership positions. And those leadership positions are actually teaching a way to think about life. Uh, it's a new religion of sorts, of sorts. She says this. She says, our new belief system is a blend of left-wing political orthodoxy, intersectional feminism, self-optimization, therapy, wellness, astrology, and Dolly Parton. And we found a different kind of clergy, personal growth influencers. So she she identifies here something that you and I probably uh, have felt, although never been able to fully uh, articulate the way she does. The new reality that you're baked into, the one that's on social media and a variety of platforms, is meant to influence you and to help you think about the world around you. However, she, she, she says this, even though these people are trying to lead you in certain ways, they don't do a really great job. Uh, it's helpful in some measure, but it doesn't quite fill the gap. She said these influencers, these ladies she talks about are instavangelists. Our screens may have shrunk, but we're still drawn to spiritual counsel, especially when it doubles as entertainment. And I'm guessing some of you can kind of sympathize with that. You, you, you are looking at videos and, and clips of people that you follow who give you insight about how to live your life. She says, yeah, those are the things that we're still drawn to. We desire spiritual counsel. How do I understand uh, why I don't like myself? You know, how do I de-stress? How do I protect my mental health? How do I ensure that I have the best life I could possibly have? How, How do I become more handsome or more beautiful? How do I put on my makeup? I mean, a million different things, but all these people are really creating a structure of how to live your life. There's a leadership lesson in there. They're trying to lead you. And here's what this woman goes on to say. She says, I have hardly prayed to God since I was a teenager, but the pandemic has cracked open inside me a profound yearning for reverence, humility, and awe. I have an overdraft on my outrage account. I want moral authority from someone who isn't shilling a memoir or calling out her enemies on social media for clout. Leah Stein is begging for something better than what the world is offering her right now. She says, I want moral authority. And maybe you kind of understand where she's coming from. If you follow a whole host of people on Instagram or TikTok or any other platform, you realize that most of their instruction, most of their encouragement is empty. It's fickle. It's fading. What the world needs right now is leadership, godly, strong leadership. It is into this void that the apostle Paul speaks in chapter two of 1 Thessalonians. Paul's going to give you something to think about in terms of what it looks like to lead well. Now, young men, last couple of weeks, we were talking about spiritual leadership. This is for you, young men. Listen closely because this is one of the manliest men that's ever walked the planet. And he's giving insight about how he led and loved the Thessalonian church. Now, ladies, don't exclude yourself just because you're thinking, oh, well, this is Paul, Uh, I'm a gal, not the same thing. Yeah, it may not be a one-to-one parallel, but the world needs godly leadership, male and female. This is not for one sex only. This is for all of you to, to say, okay, what is the standard for godly leadership? And if you personally don't aspire to leadership, you should still listen close because these are Christian qualities. But even more than that, more than that, when you leave high school ministry, and some of you guys are flying across the country to pursue a musical degree at this, that, or the other, or doing anything else after True North, you need to know the kind of leader that you want to entrust your soul to. This is the kind of leader that you should say, I'm willing to follow that guy because he displays these qualities. Again, you either need to know who this leader is, to follow that leader, and also to aspire to be that leader. Young men, listen close. Young ladies, don't exclude yourself. The world needs strong, godly leadership. I mean, just think about the kind of world that we're in right now. The politicians that are held up as our moral leaders are hypocrites, phonies, and frauds. And sadly, when you look inside the church, the the structure of big Eva, big evangelicalism, there are leaders that get held up only to be torn down because of secret sin in their lives. Young men and women, we need godly leadership. And again, Paul speaks to this and gives us a picture of what it looks like to be a godly leader. Listen close to what Paul says. Let's look together at Second, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians, that's a wrong text, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 through 6, and we're going to see how Paul defines what a godly leader looks like, and he's, he's, not, saying, uh, he's not saying this is what a godly leader looks like, he's showing us by example of himself what that person is to look like. If you don't have your Bibles, you can follow along on my screen here. He says, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Paul's writing to them and says, hey, you guys know when we came to you, Our purpose was noble. It wasn't a vain purpose. We didn't have underlying expectations. We came to give you the gospel. And that cost us something because at Philippi, we were dragged and beaten and hit with sticks and rods. But when we came to you, despite that, you know that we came with pure intention. We wanted to declare to you the gospel. In fact, I like the way the NIV puts it. We had, we dared in our God to declare to you the gospel. And then he says, even in the midst of much conflict, He's reminding them, look, I came to you to give you the gospel, even though it costs us a great deal. He's defending his ministry right now, and he's letting them know why they can trust him and why they should follow him and continue to listen to what he taught them. He continues, verse three. He says, for our appeal does not spring from error. It's not false or impurity. There's not some kind of underlying uh, motive, some ulterior motive behind that, or any attempt to deceive. We're not lying to you. We're not trying to trick you. Verse four, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. And so he says, look, you can look at our lives. We're not talking to you so we can flatter you or make you feel better about yourself. We're not trying to deceive you, lie to you, trick you, any of these things. We came because we were entrusted with something from God to give to you. And so when we talk to you, we're not trying to make you feel better about yourselves. We're trying to tell you the truth about who God is. And God knows that because he's the one who's testing our hearts. He says, on the inside of who I am, I can trust that what I'm doing is right because God tests my heart, and I can feel confident that I'm not ashamed about the work I've done. He says, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, and he'll show you how that's true in a moment. He says, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. He tells them that they're not there to, to gain from them. They're there to give to them. We didn't seek your glory, which at the point in time in, this, in, in the history, uh, people would be itinerant preachers or philosophers, and they would come for glory. They would come for gain. They would come to receive a crowd and, and for all those things. But Paul says, look, when we came to you, we came to give, not to get. We came to even suffer if, if necessary in order for you to be blessed. Paul points to a long list of proofs about who he was. When we think about the way that he's leading in this particular season of his life, really his whole season of his life, you see evidences of Paul's character that are on display. He says, look, look at my life. I came with these reasons, and you know this. God is my witness. Later on, he's going to say, you guys are witnesses too. Paul has a character that is is spotless. It's brilliant. And in fact, in today's day and age, when you look at politicians and even Instagram influencers or any kind of influencer who kind of undermines their reputation because they do the opposite of what they say they do, Paul's character is shining. No one could ever look at Paul and say, well, look, you came and you you slept with our women or you stole money from us. No one could ever lay a charge at his feet. He lived above reproach. If you have any aspirations of leadership whatsoever— whether it's a politician or spiritual leadership, or just to be a godly man in your home, young men. To even lead a young woman's heart to say, look, I'm a worthy male that you should follow in relationship. If any of you have a desire to lead whatsoever, let's take a page out of Paul's playbook. Let's number one, cultivate bulletproof character. Cultivate bulletproof character. Godly leaders are fiercely committed to pleasing God. And because that's the starting place for godly leaders, you can scrutinize their lives. And no, you're not going to find perfection, but you will find a sincere, heartfelt desire to honor the glory of God, to live for him and to be pleasing to him. And honestly, when leaders are fiercely committed to pleasing God, they will authentically and sacrificially serve others. That's what he's doing with the Thessalonians. It goes on to prove that. Your character. Your character. John Wooden, Coach John Wooden of of UCLA basketball fame, once said it this way He says, Be more concerned with your character than with your reputation, because your character is what you really are, while your reputation is merely what others think you are. Your character, young person, matters a great, great deal. Your character is who you are when no one else is looking. Your character is what you think in your head when no one else can hear. Your character is defined day in and day out by what you do, despite the fact that you'll never get credit for it. Your character is private. Now, granted, your character leaks. People can see it as you live out your life, but your character is who you are day in and day out, private time and public time. Your character matters. And Paul was able to say, look, look at my life, look at the way I came. You can uh, can see by the way that I declared the gospel to you, despite the midst of suffering, you can trust what I'm saying because my character was in line with pleasing God. Cultivate bulletproof character. First of all, notice what Paul says. You can cultivate character by suffering well. Paul was mistreated at Philippi. He was beaten along with his friends. And in the Thessalonians, uh, Thessalonica, he was chased out of town. So Paul already knew what it was like to suffer. Paul had a whole life of suffering. His entire existence as a missionary was fraught with difficulty. He experienced opposition over and over and over again. But you know one of the words that defines our present generation? The word is not suffering. Let me give you a different word that currently defines the direction that we as Americans are going, 21st century Americans. The word would probably be coddling, coddling. The word coddling, overprotecting. Ensuring that there is never discomfort in your life. Putting, it, putting you in a situation where you can't even hear words that potentially offend you. If you say something that other people deem as unfitting for, for, social, uh, for, for social conversations, you can be part of what is affectionately called cancel culture. The LA Kings announcer who had been announcing since 1988 was fired, actually forcefully told to quit his job. Why? Why? Well, because he said the unspeakable. He said all lives matter, on air. He was told promptly to leave his seats. Why? Well, because people were hurt by that. People were offended that he held beliefs that appeared in some way to not, pull the, to not, pull the, to not hold the current cultural expected response. We're coddled. We don't know how to suffer well. We're overly comfortable. And Paul speaks into this and he says, look, I came to you at great personal cost. I was mistreated at Philippi. I was chased out of town in Thessalonica. You need to understand that I'm willing to love you at great personal expense to myself. If you want to cultivate a bulletproof character, learn to suffer well even now, young person. And yet for so many people, one of the things I struggle with, honestly as a pastor, and I'm just going to confess to you that this is one of my ongoing personal struggles. I, I struggle when people make a lot of good excuses for why they won't do the smallest acts of obedience. I'm not saying I'm perfect and have it all together, but when you really want something, you make it happen, right? Little suffering, like saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go to a basketball practice, even though I don't feel good about it. I'm going to go to swim practice, even though I don't feel good about it. I, I, you do things. You suffer in little ways, but do you suffer for the thing that matters most, your character and your heart before God? Look, you need the word of God. You need prayer more than you can ever realize, which is why it's one of the constant themes of this ministry. Read your Bible and pray. Read your Bible and pray. You guys know that's the biblical answer to almost every question we ask. But for many people, that little act of obedience is a big deal to the point where, I mean, I would hate to poll you, but if I were to ask, how many of you guys have faithfully read your Bible and prayed this week? And, And I think many of you would say, well, yeah, well, I've done that. Every day in the week? Well, you know, there's a couple days where I couldn't. Like, that's so important. It's little suffering, suffering well in the little things. And today's today's podcast, you know, with the the life hackers and the productivity gurus, they tell you things like take a cold shower every day. Why? Well, because it builds your tolerance and it helps you to embrace suffering in little measures. And, you know, there's a new embracing of stoicism, that that idea, that mental construct of saying, uh, follow the stoic philosophers. And they, by and large, tell you that, Character is good, suffering is good. And in fact, there's a book called Suffering is the Way, I believe, by a new wave Stoic philosopher. All these guys are kind of floating around the truth, but Christianity speaks into that and says, no, suffer for the right reason. Suffer for the godliness that you need to be a godly leader, especially you young men. Suffering in little ways for the sake of Christ is worth it. Cultivating bulletproof character means learning to suffer, learning to accept criticism, learning to be okay that people don't like you because you hold a contrarian view contrarian in their mind, but not in God's mind. Learn to suffer well. You will be on your way to cultivating bulletproof character, just like the apostle Paul. In verses three and four in Thessalonians chapter two, Paul said, hey, our appeal doesn't spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not to please man, but to please God. Not to please man, but to please God. You want to cultivate bulletproof character, do that by living authentically before God. Living authentically before God. Paul would say that God knows their heart. He didn't didn't have to to discern whether or not uh, God knew what was going on inside him because God obviously knows. By right of his sovereignty, God knows exactly what you're thinking right now. And Paul could say, look, before God and before man, I lived faithfully. That means Paul had a clear conscience before God. He'd never had to say, man, I wonder if God's going to punish me for this sin or discipline me. God God knew his heart, and Paul was confessing that every day. He lived authentically before God. That word authentic, that's a a good word because it speaks to something that's inside of us. It goes back to our character, right? What's happening on the inside before you and God. Sometimes I'll do counseling with some of y'all. Um, even adults, and, and I'll say, you know, hey, uh, have you told that to God? I'm doubting. I'm afraid. I'm worried. Have you told that to God? And, and, and interestingly enough, sometimes the answer is, well, no, I haven't. Well, why not? Tell that to God. Your doubts, your worries, your fears, those are things to tell to God because that's living authentically. You know, the only God is aware that you have these issues? Of course he's aware. That's part of living authentically. Paul could say, look, we've been approved by God. We've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Why? Because I seek to live authentically before him. Having a bulletproof character means when you're tempted to do something immoral or wrong or contrary to the gospel, you say no because you're not living for their approval. You're living for God's approval. Yet for many people, if the price is right, they'll throw out their values in a heartbeat. We live authentically before God. That helps us cultivate bulletproof character. Paul understood that it wasn't just the work of his hands that mattered to God. It was also the condition of his heart. Paul could say, I, I lived before you with integrity. Wasn't fake, wasn't trying to deceive, wasn't trying to lie to you, trick you. His heart was in it. Young person, I need you to understand something that I feel like is often missed with young Christians. One of the things that matters to God is not just that you do the thing. What matters to God is that you do the thing with a heart that pleases God. Ephesians chapter six, verses one and two, speak right to your situation here. Paul says to, to, to kids like yourselves, as children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. But in verse two, he says, honor your father and your mother. In verse one, he says, do the thing that they say. In verse two, he says, but do it with the right attitude. Don't just do what they say, do it in a respectful and honoring kind of way. And so you see the rub there, right? You can do the one without the other. You can honor or you can obey them without honoring them, but you can't honor them without obeying them. So God commands you not only to do the thing, he wants you to do the thing with a heart that reflects an understanding that he delights in you delighting in doing good. When your heart is wayward, and your heart is going the opposite direction of where it should go, that's a moment for reflective repentance. They say, God, I'm sorry that I don't want to do the right thing right now. I'm sorry that I don't like my parents. I'm sorry that I, I don't want to do what you want me to do. Please forgive me and help me to walk humbly before you. Young person, don't be satisfied with going through the motions of obedience. You need to seek heart level change by repenting of dead works. That's cultivating bulletproof character. Paul would say in verses five and six in second chapter of Thessalonians, he says, we never came with flat, words, words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. He says, I came to you selflessly. I didn't come to serve myself. Cultivate bulletproof character by giving without selfish motives. By learning to give of yourself and not seeking to gain something back. Not having ulterior motives for gleaning glory or money or something else. Uh, the, 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 The one with bulletproof character is giving of himself for the good of others and for the glory of God. Seeking the reward from God Himself. Giving without selfish motives living authentically before God and suffering well. These are all the things that help you cultivate bulletproof character. And if you had these things alone, young person, what a different world this would be. You sought leadership with these kinds of qualities, man. You would be high on the list for most people saying, yeah, I want that person. Because everybody wants someone with character, integrity, honesty. These are old school things, but they matter such a great deal in today's world. You should notice that, right? You should notice that. Paul continues to build on this on this. Foundation of the way that he interacts with the Thessalonians, and what he's going to say next is super odd. It's surprising because you don't expect to hear it from a manly man. Nevertheless, he says it. Take a look at the next few verses here. In verses seven and eight, Paul says something crazy. He says, "But when we were," uh, he says, "But we, instead of all those things, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children." <laughs> uh, okay, pause there for a second. Everybody understand what a nursing mother is? Be clear in their mind. There's a couple of them in the room. So if you need an example, don't look too hard, but just get, in a, get a sense of what we're talking about. Paul says, like a nursing mother, I, I fed you. I cared for you. Clear? Clear? We're clear. Okay. Awkward laughter. I understand. It is a little awkward. But he says, like a nursing mother, who took care of her own children. We were gentle with you, tender Verse eight, so being affectionately desirous of you, that's a really interesting way of saying, like, we really, really cared for you. We loved you guys so much. We were ready to share with you, not only the gospel of God, the gospel was shared with you, but we also wanted to share our own selves. The word there speaks to their soul, their suke. It's the the, the deepest part of who we were. We wanted to give you that, give you all of that. Why? Well, because you'd become very dear to us. This new church that Paul planted in Thessalonica, he said, look, guys, we treated you so well. We cared for you. We were gentle. We were lowly. We fed you. We provided for you. Why? Well, because we loved you. We had a desire for you. Now think about it. This is a manly man talking to people saying we were like a, like a, like a nursing mom with you. Awkward terms, uh, maybe a little uncomfortable, but I think the lesson here is pretty obvious. Godly leadership Godly leaders are fiercely committed to pleasing God by, again, authentically and sacrificially serving others. And in this case, it means learning to love like a new mom. If you want to aspire to a realm of leadership in your home or or in the office or anything else, you need to know that learning to love people like a new mom is part of the plan. This is a godly thing. I read a story this week about a mom who was sadly caught in a house fire with her newborn baby. She was on the second story, and quickly realized that her ability to get out of the house was fading. And so in a moment, she made one of the most difficult decisions I'm sure she would ever make. She had her baby in her arms, realizing that there would be no way for both of them to survive. And so she tucked her little baby into a car seat, buckled him in, opened the window, found debris, and tossed the baby out. I mean, whew, get the chills just thinking about that. The baby was not only saved, but he had no, no injuries on his body. His mom died. See, that's the kind of love of a mom, that, like that undeniable care and concern for her young that Paul is, I think, trying to capture here. Like, I'm willing to hurt for you. I'm willing to put myself to death in order for you to live. Paul points to that and says, look, this is what a godly leader looks like. He's not pointing to himself, obviously, but he's highlighting the fact that Uh, godly leadership loves like a new mother. Well, there are qualities to this. One of those qualities he he says in verse 7, when he talks about being gentle among them, he says, we're gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. I think what he's really getting at there is that tender attentiveness. Tender attentiveness. Paul is saying, I I care about you guys. Let me show you how. Uh, A baby needs constant attention. Like they poop, they throw up, they, they they cry for different things. And if you look at a new mom, and again, there's a couple in the room, just ask some of those ladies what it's like to take care of a newborn. It's an all-day, everyday thing. There's no breaks. It's it's 24-7, 365 for at least the first couple years where you finally kind of feel feel a couple breaks in there. But there's a tender attentiveness there. Uh, Moms go through a lot to care for this baby. They lose sleep. In fact, uh, they say that when, when a, a new mother goes through the first, several, the first several months of her pregnancy, it's not pregnancy, having the baby, that she becomes literally sleep-deprived to the point where having her behind the wheel is a lot like having a drunk person behind the wheel. She's given of herself fully to this baby. She's not sleeping. So if you see Candace driving or Kiana driving, get out of the way. <laughs> Give plenty of space. Or my wife, too, but she's sleeping these days. So anyway... Uh, tender attentiveness. There's, that's, the kind of, that's the kind of attention a, a mom gives to a baby. And Paul says, look, I constantly fed you guys. I was gentle among you. I wasn't begrudgingly feeding you. Like, oh, they want to hear the gospel again. Fine. I'll tell you. But didn't I tell you already? No. Paul's jumping into that saying, well, I'm, I care about you getting this. So he's attentive, condescends to the baby's needs. Godly tenderness is masculine. I guess for you, young person, if male or female, look, I think what this speaks to us is terms of, in terms of how do we apply this, it really is observation and patience. Like a mom looks at her baby and makes decisions. Like she can, it's almost like they have this sixth sense where she could look at him and he's got a dirty diaper. Like from like 10 feet away, too. Like I could just tell by the way he's the eye he makes, he's got a dirty diaper. Maybe you need to start looking at people like that. Not for the diaper thing, but just start looking and observing and saying, man, you know, this guy's normally upbeat and it just seems like he's, he's a bit down and out today. I should kind of ask and figure out what's going on. That observational quality that moms have, they develop that. It's a very highly sensitive and tuned radar. They can, they, right? They, they, when you walk in the house, they know. They know something's up. How's your day, sweetheart? It's fine. Oh, it's a bad day, huh? Like they know. No, no, they know that. It's a mom thing. Observation. You need to build your qualities of observation for people. But on top of that, patience. When a baby poops in her diaper, mom's like, man, why can't you get this together? Stop pooping in your diaper. I showed you the toilet. Like a mom tip. I mean, if you're 18 and doing that, okay, she might say... <laughs> She might start getting upset. But for a baby, she's not going to be that. She's going to be patient and understand, like, okay, you've got some growing to do. And Paul, for the fledgling church, is saying, okay, I understand you've got to grow up a little bit. I'm going to be patient and gracious. that has got to be our, our heart toward people who are especially new in Christianity. But understanding that that broader concept of tender attentiveness carries through. That doesn't only happen with baby Christians. That's for all of us. Tender attentiveness is the heartbeat of a godly leader caring about you, asking questions, leaning in, and patiently instructing. Look for that and aspire to that. Not only tender attentiveness, new moms also provide formative instruction. Paul says in the first half of verse 8, he says, you know, we, were, we desired you so much, we loved you so much, that we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. The first part of that, though, not only the gospel of God tells us that that was a big part of his care for this church. He, he cared that they understood who they were. Again, pay attention to new moms. And I know for some of you guys, this is a little bit foreign because you might be, you know, the youngest sibling in your house, but find a new mom. Uh, a mom who loves her kid is going to read to the kid. Kid doesn't understand, you know, a two-month-old, they don't get it, but she reads to them. She sings to the baby. Uh... She'll say things like, no, if the baby's touching something, they're not supposed to. Like if a baby, the, you know, they got the diaper off and the baby's trying to play with the diapers. No, 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 honey. She'll instruct. She'll tell, and she'll patiently say, no, you, that you don't do that. You do this over here. Um, sometimes moms will catechize their kids. You know what that means? They'll teach them scripture and they'll recite the Bible to them. And they'll say, okay, do you know that you're made by God and God's the creator? Now, moms do this. And Paul's saying, you know what? A, a mom provides formative instruction. And not only do, do, do moms do that, but godly leaders do this too. Godly leaders are willing to help you be formed by the gospel. He says, we shared ourselves, but we, uh, we did that on top of sharing the gospel with you over and over again. We wanted you to be formed and shaped by godly instruction. Here's the takeaway for you, young person. Look, sometimes, uh, not sometimes, often I think when you come to church, you think, man, I already knew that. I already knew that. I I heard that before. I got that. Um, Two things. One, uh, when we say that to ourselves, usually it's because we're excusing ourselves from the application, normally. What what I mean by that is you might say, well, yeah, I know that already, but are we practically living it out day by day? Usually not. That's the first thing. But the second thing is that scripture is replete with repetitive information, Not because God is a broken record, but because God cares that you understand his way of life. He wants you to understand that repetition is didactic. It's instructive. He's trying to help you understand by remembering things over and over again what's most important to him. In fact, when you're reading through Deuteronomy, if you're reading through Deuteronomy with us in the DBR, you'll notice that Moses does repeat himself. He says things in slightly different ways. He'll he'll refer back to something he'd already previously written, but he repeats himself. God is okay with repetition. Because it's formative. It's formative. It shapes us. Repetition helps shape who we are. In fact, I can tell you this. Repetition works in your life because I, if I start singing a tune, that tune will come in your head, and those lyrics will just start flying out. Like, I don't know what songs you're into right now, but if I hit the right song, you'd be able to say, oh, yeah, I know that song. It doesn't necessarily mean you know what the song means, but you get my point. Formative instruction. Young person, when you're interacting with somebody and you're afraid... Like, oh man, I'm gonna just say something they already know. They're struggling in life and they're struggling with their mom or dad or their, you know, their homework. Say things people know. Don't be afraid to repeat scripture. Don't be afraid to say things that they already know because they're comforting. Christians love the truth and we never get enough of it. D.L. Moody, one of the famous revival preachers of the 1800s, uh, someone asked him, D.L. Moody, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? He said, yes, but I leak. That's the reality for all of us. We, we have, we're like containers of the gospel and of gospel truth. And just because we hear something once doesn't mean it stays there. We leak. We need constant refilling. So in your small group settings, you're encouraging and exhorting one another every day. Don't feel like you're doing someone a disservice by repeating truths that they already know. This is helpful. This is formative. And this is what godly leaders do. Moms offer tender attentiveness, formative instruction, one other thing I've already hinted at, second part of verse eight, Paul says, we're ready to share with you not only the gospel, but ourselves, everything we have to give. We're ready to lay it down on the line for you because we loved you that much. All hours of the night, day by day, with only a few breaks, I can think of no one more suitable to characterize this than, than a mom. And we've already discussed this. She's She's unstoppable. Little sleep, lots of work, lots of diapers, lots of care and concern for not only the baby—you see, there's other kids involved. She is devoted to the point of exhaustion. In fact, there are, if you just do a little bit of digging here—you'll find out that even in the animal kingdom, moms are willing to lay down their lives for their young. I heard a story about a a, a bird—I don't know what kind of bird it was—but a bird that was in this fire-laden area. So it was common to have this area overrun with fires. must be in California. Well, this bird was found uh, after this area had been charred over. It caught on fire and they found this bird huddled over a group of her young chicks. The mom was dead. But underneath her charred skin and feathers and bones, her birds were still chirping because she had covered them with her wings and she tried to protect them so they would live. She, her devotion not only led to exhaustion, but even death. Loving, learning to love like a new mom includes an exhaustive kind of devotion. Paul says, I'm willing to give of even myself for your sake, for your good. Paul would do anything for the good of the church. And if you didn't already catch it, the love of a mother parallels the love of Christ who gave himself up for us, who willingly died in our place that we might live. He is that mother bird huddling over the chicks and saying, I'll I'll take the bullet for you. I will burn so that you may live. Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins, sets the example for giving himself up for the good of the body. Look to Jesus for strength. Look to Jesus for what this is supposed to look like. Learn to love like a new mother. Tender attentiveness, formative instruction, exhaustive devotion. In these last few verses, Paul caps this whole section by saying, look, I, was, I had a character that is above reproach with you. I loved you like a mother. And now look, look at how he finishes this. Paul is holistic. Take a look. He says, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day why? That we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So Paul paid his own way. He was a tent maker. I don't know what his brothers did, but he made tents. Um, he made tents by probably at night and preached to them in the morning. So he's saying in verse 9, look, all day, every day, we were with you. We labored among you. We gave everything we had to give. That whole idea of night and day probably signifies that Paul woke up early in the morning in order to get ready for the day, maybe make a couple of tents. And then in order to be ready for the Thessalonians, he would spend the rest of the day with them. Night and day, I was with you. And then he says in verse 10, look, you guys saw this. You are witnesses. And I called God to the witness stand as well. You're witnesses. God's a witness. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, uh, you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so Paul, in the first place, was a steward entrusted with the gospel. In the second place, he was a mom who loved her young. And now in this last one, he's kind of like a coach who loves his sons and his daughters. He's like a father a fatherly coach who's saying, look, I I set the example for you, and then I showed you uh, by my life and by my work how to follow along. And then at the end of that, he's like, I charge you. Look at verse 11. Uh, Like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. He's like, man, I I was there with you in, in in the game with you saying, let's do this. Go for it. Encourage, charging, exhortation. Why? He wants you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Number three, if we're going to learn to lead like Paul. If we're going to be godly leaders who are fiercely committed to God's glory, we've got to learn to coach like a wise father. Learn to coach like a wise father. It may surprise you to know that as a young kid, I was pretty bad. Um, and so I got spanked a lot. Uh, I got the belt. I mean, early on, I got the chancla, but the belt was more, the, more, the more faithful one um, on occasion, I got hit with this. My mom had this stick. It was like that. It's just a stick, piece of hard wood, and she used it so much on me that one time she spanked me and it broke. It was like, yes, like no more discipline. Uh, that didn't happen actually. Uh, they just got more creative with how strong and how faithful the the, the disciplinary instruments became. Really creative on their part. But having been disciplined like a million times in my childhood, that's actually not the thing I remember most uh, about my relationship with my dad. Because when my mom was, was really mad at me, she'd be like, just wait till your dad gets home. Like, there's nothing that strikes fear in the heart of a young person more than be like, Dad, no. Like, like that was almost worse than the punishment. Almost. My dad was strong. You know, like I told you, he was in prison, so he had muscles. And like, he would just, it was, it was painful. But again, that's not what I remember most. What I remember most about my dad as a young, young man, is that he had this incredible work ethic. Like he would just work hard day and night, you know, typical, just inexhaustible. Like he'd wake up early to go to work and he'd come back late and basically just kind of drag himself in the door, like totally exhausted. He'd remember thinking about that, saying, now he works really hard. Don't know why that stuck. But in a similar sense, Paul is saying, look at me, follow my lead. Watch how I do this. Don't just hear me, let me show you. See, that's what a a wise father slash coach does. He provides a diligent example for the people that he's following. He's saying, look at how hard I work and follow along on this. Paul demonstrated that. He said, night and day, we worked among you. Look, I didn't want to put you out, so I showed you what it looked like. I gave you my best. I worked hard, and hopefully you can acknowledge that. He lived above reproach. He practiced what he preached. I coached in high school uh, who was one of my favorite coaches, because he would not only issue us workouts, but he would work out with us. So even though we were running around the track, he would be running with us. And even though we were throwing up, like, I don't think I ever saw him throw up, but he was doing the workout with us. And so even though it was miserable, at the very least, he was doing it with us. And so we took some confidence in that and we had respect for him. All you right, we're going to do it with us. I guess well, we, can, we, can, we can endure. If you're like a thousand years older and you're not going to throw up, fine, maybe we can do this as well. Uh, that's what I think kind of what Paul's getting at here and saying, look, I set an example for you. Like anyone can be heroic and noble once. Anyone can open to the Bible one day of the week and say, okay, God, I, I did it. But it takes a true godly leader who is disciplined enough to day by day sacrifice themselves for the glory of God and for the cause of Christ. I read this book once and this line stuck out. I, I loved it so much that I mostly committed it to memory. I had to look it up just to make sure I got it right. But the author said, success is never owned. It is only rented and the rent is due every day. Now, that's helpful. Success is never owned. It is only rented and the rent is due every day. You can't rest on your laurels. You can't assume that you deserve something. Paul didn't do that. Paul was one of the most gifted evangelist apostles. And yet he would say, look, I worked harder than any of them. Any of the other apostles, I worked harder, yet not I, but the grace of God through me. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 in verses 21 through 31, he goes through a long list of things that he had, he had accomplished. Here's what he says. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there was a daily pressure on me for, and my anxiety for the churches. Paul lived a life of, of diligence sacrifice. Like everything he did, he was all out. He was full send every time. And that's the example he sets. That's what a wise father does who's looking out for his kids. And that's especially what a coach does. I'm going to show you. I'm not just going to tell you I'm going to do it so you see it. I'll let you respond to that. Diligent example. But he goes even further. In verses 11 and 12, I like I this, and I, I found this helpful because in 11 and 12, he says, for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you. We exhorted every single one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. So you see those, those three words there, exhorted, encouraged, and charged. All those work together to form a point in Paul's, Paul's words here. He's saying, look, I didn't just give you the example, but I challengingly encouraged you. I pushed you. I, I, I charged you by God and by man. Do this and don't stop. That's what a good coach does, right? A good coach, when he sees you slacking off in the gym, he doesn't just say, hey, good job. He gets in your face and he says, you could do better than this. Why aren't you giving it your all? A good coach and a good dad is going to take you aside and say, look, I know you got more than this. I know you can do better than this. Hang in there and give it your best. In fact, going back to Coach Wooden, he, he, there was a time where he, they, they told a story about uh, one of the p- players who was underperforming. Like he was just going through the drills. He was doing what he was supposed to do, you know, shooting the hoops. But Wooden knew him, and he knew that he was capable of doing more. And so he goes up to him, and he says, give me 100%. He says, you can't make up for poor effort today by giving 110% tomorrow. You don't have 110%. You only have 100. And that's what I want from you right now. Like tomorrow, you can't make up for today. You got today. That's all you got. Give it your best. And so Paul says, look, essentially, I encourage, exhort, and charge you. I'm coming beside you and saying, I'm in the battle with you. Let's move forward together. And sometimes that encouragement is challenging, even confrontational. Look, if you love each other, young people, if you love your brothers and sisters, sometimes, and perhaps even many times, It requires you to get out of your comfort zone and say hard things to your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what a godly leader does. Look, I'm sure all of us would prefer not to have awkward conversations and say things that are difficult to people. But scripture gives us encouraging commands to do that very thing. When you see your brothers and sisters not living up to the call of living worthy for the gospel, you are to lovingly and challengingly encourage them. I know you're capable of more. And that's what a godly leader does. I know you can do better. How can I help with that? How can I encourage you in that? How can I support you in that? But I'm concerned for you. Godly leader doesn't shy away from awkward conversations. He leans into that and says, I want you to walk worthy of the gospel of God. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Coaching like a wise father will mean providing a diligent example, a hardworking example, and challenging encouragement. Not every day, not perfectly, but consistently. Man, what would happen if God gave us leaders like this? This is what we need. This is the kind of leadership you should aspire to, the kind of leadership you should follow. Man, this would change the game for us. Today, many leaders are not like this. Of course, some of our greatest influencers online and, uh, and the media are not that. They're not that. And in fact, I like the way that Leah of the New York Times closes her article. She says, there is a chasm between the vast scope of our needs and what influencers can provide. We're looking for guidance in the wrong places. Instead of, us, instead of helping us to engage with our most important questions, our screens might be distracting us from them. Maybe we actually need to go to something like church. Hopefully, Leah, along with her friends and you, come to church and see godly leaders who are fiercely committed to pleasing God. And they do that by authentically, sacrificially serving others, by being men and women of character, by loving like a new mom, and by coaching like a wise dad. Oh, that God would do that in us. And I pray that tonight as you guys discuss these questions that you would begin to see in new ways the way that God could grow you to become this kind of effective, godly leader. Pastors, doctors, nurses, moms, dads, coaches even. I mean, whatever the Lord puts you, may you aspire to be this kind of godly leader. Let's pray.